Now we're in Matthew chapter 13, and you are at verse 24. And this is another one of the parables that Jesus gives an explanation. This parable reads maybe like, it it seems like it goes by a little quicker than the parable of the sower does, but there are actually a lot of details. This this parable actually includes details about the kingdom of God that are, that are relevant to nine things. I mean, the, the parable includes teaching about the Son of Man, about the world, about the sons of the kingdom, about the sons of the wicked, about the devil, about the end of the age, about angels, about hell, and about the kingdom of the Father in heaven. Right? And so it's like nine different, like really important spiritual things to understand uh, that this parable gets into. And, and, but it does it in a very compact little way. Let me pray and then I'll read the parable. I'll read just the parable part first and then a little later on I'll read Christ's explanation, which is why there's two, there's two passages of scripture I lifted, listed in your uh, bulletins that are separated by a few verses because you have the parable itself. Then you have a couple more parables, and you have the, the, the teaching about how his teaching in parables was a fulfillment of prophecy. Then the multitude goes away, and they go into the house, and they say, teach us about this one, about the parable of the, the, the tares, and, and, he, uh, and he gives the explanation. So that's why there's two non-sequential passages of Scripture listed in your bulletin. Let's pray, and I'll read the first part of it. Here we go. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you so much for the privilege that it is to read your word and listen to your word. And I pray, Lord God, since it's your word, that you would help us to pay attention and give, Lord God, the heed that we ought to to the reading and teaching of your word. We worship you when we give heed to your word. And I pray, Lord God, you'd help us to learn from it what we ought And I pray that you'd help us to go from here and be doers of it, Lord God, for your glory. Lord, I pray that the people in the room who are saved would be edified in whatever way they need it, as you know, Lord God, by this teaching. And I pray if anyone's come in here today who's not yet been born again, that by your grace, if it would be your will, that you would grant through the hearing of faith, Lord God, through the hearing of the word of Christ, that they might come to faith in our Lord Jesus Christ and be gloriously saved. We pray that your Holy Spirit would do your work in us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Verse 24. Another parable he put forth to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field, but while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, then the tares also appeared. So the servants of the owner came to him and said, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? He said to them, An enemy has done this. The servants said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, No. Lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. 
And at the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather together the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. So here we have another parable that employs uh, seeds being planted, but you sort of have to put out of your mind everything that you learned about the parable of the sower because what the seed here represents is something that's completely different. I guess the one thing that you could keep in mind is that the one who sows the seed is, is the Lord, right? And uh, uh, the Lord is the one who builds his kingdom. But before we get into some of the details, there's two important things right off the bat. Before we even read Christ's own explanation of this, there's two important things that, that need to be pointed out. And number one is this. Uh, if you've been in the faith for any length of time, um, you've maybe heard somebody at some point preach about this parable and apply it exclusively to the church. Like it's a parable that's talking about how in the church there are wheat and there are tares. And let me just say that I think there is application uh, for the church, but it should be very clearly stated, and I'll explain this more in a little bit, that, that Jesus is not specifically teaching about the church here. You'll see that what he says is the field is what? If, if you peeked ahead at the second part of this, the field is the world, right? And so, and so where these seeds are planted and grow side by side is in the world. Now, the church, of course, exists in the world. So you can't exempt the church from what is being taught here, but you can't exclusively say that he's talking about the church because our lives as sons of the kingdom, daughters of the kingdom, children of God, our lives as Christians exist perpetually in the context of church because we are the body of Christ, but not always like gathered together and, and assembled and in fellowship like this. We exist sometimes, honestly, most of the time, outside of here, right? And we're still part of the church when we're out there, so to speak, but, uh, but we're really just walking and living among the world. And that's what's happening is the church, which is the people who are the sons of the kingdom, who have been saved by his grace because they have believed the gospel, the church is growing up side by side in the world with those who do not believe. And we'll explain that more in a minute. But that's the first thing to say, is that, is that be aware that while there is application, important application to make to the life of the church, the parable of the wheat and the tares isn't necessarily specifically about the church. But then the second thing, and maybe this is even a little more important, is while we're going to go verse by verse because there are so many details and we're going to try to cover and explain in one sermon everything that is in here today, it is important to note that when Jesus taught parables, there was always a big point. Do you understand what I mean? Like, for example, when we went over the parable of the sower, the main point of the parable of the sower was what? what do, you, do you remember? Well, it was about fruit, but, but the fruit defined what? Who? Right, someone said it over here. Who's, who's in the kingdom and who's not? That was the main point of the parable of the sower, was to show who's in the kingdom and who's not, right? And, it was, and then you went through all those different types of soil and how the good soil, when the seed fell on it, it produced fruit. 
And so you can see that the ones who really believed were the fruit bearers because they really truly believed the word of God and it produced a crop of fruit and then uh, they, they were the ones who were truly the children of the kingdom, whereas you had all the other ways that the word of God kind of hit people. For some, it just went in one ear and out the other. Some of them, they heard it and they liked it, but when there was any trouble, they went away or the cares of the world choked it off. They were not true believers, right? So the main point, even though there were all those details, the big point of the parable of the sower was who's in the kingdom and who's not and why. This parable of the wheat and the tares has a big point as well. We'll go through the details, as I said here in the moment, as we read Jesus' explanation. But I think as you go through this first part of it, you can really discern what the main thing is that he's talking about. He says, if you look at verse 24 again, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field, but while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. So just from that statement alone, you can see that what aspect of the kingdom of God is being described here is what? That the kingdom of God has opponents, right? The kingdom of God suffers violence. The kingdom of God has those who are against it. The kingdom of God has those who are trying to thwart what it is that is being accomplished in the kingdom of God, right? And so we would describe that maybe as Bible students and children of the Lord who want to understand his word, we would describe that, I would say, by talking about spiritual warfare. That is what I think is the big picture in the parable of the wheat and the tares, is spiritual warfare. Because you have a picture of a farmer who plants good seed in his field and then an enemy comes along while everybody's sleeping and plants bad seed in the field. So there is a deliberate effort by an enemy to thwart what the farmer was doing. Right? That is spiritual warfare. And when you read the details, you'll see that like who the, who the good farmer and the enemy represent are the two chief combatants in this spiritual war. That's real. That's a real thing, spiritual warfare. And you may, you may think to yourself that, well, I'm sure nobody thinks to themselves that it's unimportant. But you might think to yourself that there are things that might be more pressing or more important to talk about. And I feel like one of the biggest spiritual battles that gets fought in the spiritual war that's going on is just pointing out that there's a spiritual war going on because we fall asleep to it. And this is one of the reasons this parable is here. I mean, Jesus didn't have to say this. I mean, Jesus is pointing out all these aspects of his kingdom with these parables talks eventually here about it being like a mustard seed and all the birds of the air come and find their, you know, make a nest in it. He talks about it being like a precious pearl. The person goes and sells everything that he has, or the, the field, right? He goes and he sells everything that he has. He goes, he buys the field and everything else. All these wonderful, familiar ways that the kingdom of God is described. Then here's this parable where he describes the kingdom of God in terms of one really wicked person trying to deliberately destroy the farm 
of a guy who's just minding his business and trying to farm his crops. It's a war. It's a picture of a spiritual war. Now, listen to this. I want you to be encouraged by this. I'm glad you're here today. Listen to this. If the prospect of going to war is not something that typically people like, I know that. This year, 2018, is 30 years since I got out of the Air Force. That makes me feel really old to say that. But uh, I remember when I joined in 1985, and uh, we, were, we were quite distantly removed from the end of the Vietnam War. We were, that ended in 75. So, so when I enlisted, I actually enlisted in 84 and started in 85. And uh, uh, I, I was a decade removed from the end of the Vietnam War. Um, there was no such thing as the war on terror yet or anything like that. The Soviets were in Afghanistan. Um, there were things going on, Grenada, Panama, um, while I was in and actually stationed in the Middle East, we bombed Libya at one point, if you remember that. But um, I'll tell you, you know, when I joined, there was always the, the very real possibility that any time you join the military, the country could end up at war, and you may have to, like, risk your own life. I remember talking to Juan who came into my office before he joined the Navy. I remember talking to Christian, who came into my office before he joined the Marine Corps. And uh, I even remember talking to Julian before he went off to the Naval Academy. And all these guys, they, they came in. They knew I had been in the service, and, and they asked me some questions. And I talked to them about the great opportunity that it is. But I think you were probably sitting with me, and you were probably sitting with me. I don't know if you were at the time, or maybe you were, but... but uh, um, but I remember saying to them, the one thing you have to realize is that you might give your life, right? You might have to do that. And, of course, all three of the aforementioned young brothers were very brave and, 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 and very committed, and they all went through. And uh, two of them are still seeing their commitments through right now, in fact. You know? But all three of them went through and, and, and deserve our respect you know, because of that. But that's a side point. The, the point, though, is that nobody wants to go to war, right? Nobody, I mean, we want to serve and we want to do what's right and do what's noble and do what's good. But if I told you this, if I told you if you join up, you're guaranteed you're going to go to war, all right? But I want to tell you something. There's a few things I want to guarantee you. Ready? Three things. Number one, I want to guarantee you that you're going to win, right? Number two, I want to guarantee you that you're going to survive. And number three, I want to guarantee you that when you come out on the other side, you are going to be so strong and so honored and so happy and so overjoyed that you're going to live forever. Now, if I told you those three things, would you be, would that like encourage you a little bit to join up? Would you not want to be part of that? Listen, the spiritual war as Christians that we fight is a slugfest and we get beat up. Boy, do I know that. We really do. And you know what? But here's the thing about spiritual warfare and you need to know this. The war is already won. That sounds like a cliche, but it's absolutely true because when Jesus Christ rose from the dead, 
When Jesus Christ rose from the dead, what that was, was a foreshadowing of what is the ultimate fate and destiny of every single one of his children that we one day will rise. And we will go through this life and we will fight battles and we will struggle and we will get knocked down and we will fail. And we will, by his grace, be able to pick ourselves up, go back to him. If there's fault, confess your faults, receive his forgiveness and his understanding, know his grace, which is abiding and never changing and and is something that you can never exhaust or wear out. And you'll get up and you'll keep going and you'll keep going and you'll keep going. And at the end of it all, guaranteed, guaranteed because Jesus rose from the dead, sealed as an irrevocable promise upon your soul by the presence of the Holy Spirit in you, is ultimate Victory and eternal life. You are going to end up, listen, if you're in Christ, we go through spiritual warfare, but you are going to end up with a new body. You're going to end up with a soul that can't be touched by anything wicked or evil. No more sin. You know those tears I was talking about from the hymn before? No more of those, right? All of it is going to be gone. That's where the spiritual war goes. It might not be nice when the wheat and the tares are growing up together. But at the end, when the wheat is harvested and put into the barn, that's going to be one really nice barn. And you're going to be in it forever. With the Lord, it will not suffer any corruption. It will not suffer anything wicked. It will not suffer anything evil. All of the things that bring you down and drag you down now, they are gone. Anyone happy about that? Listen. The real remedy for the Christian, for the Christian in this life, is to know that God, that God exists eternally from eternity past to eternity future, right? And so the real solution for, for, for fighting through the difficult moments and the difficult battles and the difficult times is to get your mind on that, on eternity, right? There is this, there is, there is this eternal God who is our Father, right? Who exists and is for us and has saved us, and is going to keep us, right? And what we need to do now is to get our minds and our hearts fixed and set upon Him. Get alone with Him. Get apart with Him. If you have ears to hear, hear. And if you're in this, you know what I'm talking about. You get alone with the Lord, and you press into the Lord, And you let the Lord be your strength even through the war because the Lord is the conqueror and the victor in the war and the Lord is the guarantor of your reward after the war. Isn't that great? That's what we're in. And he taught a parable to show what? That his kingdom, while he's building his kingdom, it is ultimately going to have its future experience for us, right? I mean, we are, as Christians, subjects in His kingdom right now. But we haven't fully experienced what life in His kingdom is going to be like yet. That's coming in the future. 
There is an element, there is, there is an experience of the kingdom of God that we have only tasted. But we are going to live in forever in its fullness. And so this parable is taught to show that the kingdom of God, as it exists in its form now, here on earth, is being built and growing up side by side with arch enemies. But rejoice, but rejoice, because the day is coming when the chaff will be separated off and the wheat will be gathered into the barn. And I don't know about you, but that's a barn dance that I'm looking forward to going to. Do you understand? Now, that's the main point of the parable. There's details to go through. But the main point of the parable was to show that even while the kingdom is being built, there is an enemy at work against it. Now, look at the verse 36. I basically, in a manner of speaking, I think just explained in, in a way that for now I think is satisfactory verses 24 through 30. But I don't want to get too much into going word by word through that section because the Lord himself gave an explanation, like with the parable of the sower. But, but I want to, uh, we naturally in explaining the parable of the wheat and the tares, want to defer to the Lord's own explanation of it. So thus we go ahead to verse 36. Now listen to this. Jesus sent the multitude away and went into the house. Right? So he spoke to the multitude in parables. We've seen him do that. And then after he was done speaking some parables to them, and there's a couple others that we'll come back and catch up with next week. But uh, he sent them away and he went into the house. And then his disciples came to him. And even though they had heard more than one parable, they asked specifically to explain this one. And he called, they, they themselves called it what? We call it the parable of the wheat and the tares because there's wheat and tares. But what, isn't it revealing that the disciples said, explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. Because I think they have a pretty good understanding, especially having learned the parable of the sower, they have a pretty good understanding of like, you know, the idea that the Son of Man comes and sows and wheat and good fruit and all of that. Those are the ones who are truly his children. But now, now we're talking about tares. And so they're like, well, what does that represent? They really want to know specifically what the tares are. So they refer to it as the parable of the terrors of the field because that's the part that's like sort of new to them. And so Jesus gives a thorough explanation of a thorough and highly detailed explanation of this whole thing. And here it is. He answered and said to them, He who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world. The good seeds are the sons of the kingdom, but the tares are the sons of the wicked one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. Very, very plain, right? Very plain. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of this age. The Son of Man will send out His angels and they will gather out of His kingdom all things that offend and those who practice lawlessness. 
you know, those words, practice lawlessness, if you've been paying attention or you've read through the Gospel of Matthew, you're familiar with the Sermon on the Mount, those two words, practice lawlessness, should be quite familiar to you. It's the exact same words that Jesus used in Matthew chapter 7 when he said, there will be many in that day who will say to me, Lord, 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 what about me? Didn't we do this? Didn't we do that? And he will say, depart from me. I never knew you, you who practice lawlessness. Right? Because, like we learned from the parable of the sower, the general course of the practice of one's life reveals where their heart and where their faith really is. Right? And the Lord is going to come. He's going to send out His angels and they're going to remove all things that offend and those who practice lawlessness and will cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun Not S-O-N, but S-U-N. The righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So let's make some observations today. I don't. One of the things you can do sometimes with these parables that have a lot of details is you can kind of over-interpret. And before you know it, like every single word means or represents like three or four different things. And, and by the time you're done, you lost the sense of what the big point is. And that's why I wanted to share the big point right out at the front. The main point of this is that the kingdom of God in its present experience as we live in it here on earth, the kingdom of God is in battle. The kingdom of God is in a war. Because as the Lord is trying to build his kingdom, the devil is trying to destroy. And you see that in the Lord's own explanation. So, what does he say? First of all, I I wrote down like six things here that I want to point out to you, and they all have little sub things to it as well, I'm afraid. But, but, uh, But here's how it goes. So the first thing is this. Number one, Jesus said to them, he who sows the good seed is the son of man. Let's not take that for granted, right? Jesus is himself the one who is illustrated here by the one who sows good seed. What do we derive from that? The builder of the kingdom of God is the Son of God, right? Jesus is the one who is building the kingdom. If you are a subject in the Lord's kingdom, it is because he died for your sins, he rose from the dead, And God himself drew you to himself and granted unto you the salvation that he called you to and elected you unto even before the foundation of the the world. The Lord is the builder of the kingdom. Jesus is active in building his kingdom. Today, right now, Jesus is alive and active. The Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, is at work in his children And the work that goes on, the Lord promised what? When he made that great commission, which we talked about recently, to the church and told them to go and make disciples, what did he say? I am with you, what? Always. So the Lord dispatches his servants, his children, to go throughout the world, preaching the gospel, baptizing those who believe, teaching them to obey God's word, making them disciples of the Lord, but they don't do it on their own. 
Jesus said, as you're doing this, I am always with you. And who remembers what he said? Who remembers what he said? Very powerful thing that before he said, uh, go and make disciples of all the nations. What did he say right before that? The sentence right before that. Anybody know? He made, a, a, he made an amazing assertion. Who said that? Close. He said, all authority is given to me in heaven and on earth. So, the one who says, I am with you always, the one who is actively building his own kingdom, asserts all authority in heaven and on earth is mine. Jesus earned that, you might say, when he rose from the dead. All authority. And you know, Jesus held back a lot, you know, when he was alive before he was crucified. I mean, does not the Bible say at one point that as he was going through all that stuff that he could have called on legions of angels to stop all of that persecution that he was going through and dragging him through all those trials and dragging him all the way to the cross? He knew it was his father's will to go through all of that, right? But, but I mean, he, so, and so he like stayed true. Not my will, but yours be done. He prayed to the Father. And the Bible says that he could have called on angels to stop all of that. But no, not anymore. All authority in heaven and on earth belongs to him. That's one of the ways you can know and have comfort in their difficulties and your trials. The Lord has all authority. He has his reasons and he has his purposes. Nothing that happens to you in your life is without a reason. Nothing that happens in your life is without some kind of purpose. Even, and dare I say, maybe especially the hard things. Because we know that it is through the road of trials, it is through the path of difficulty, that growth happens. The strong ones are the ones who have endured hard things. Right? The really valuable, bright, shiny gold, the really costly, expensive gold is the stuff that has been refined and refined and refined again and again by fire. Jesus says, I am with you always. He also said, I will build my church. Right? When Peter made his confession, we're coming to that passage in a couple of chapters here. In Matthew 16, you know, Peter makes that confession and, and Jesus like plays on his name, you know, you're Peter. And he says, upon this rock, what? I, and, and people argue about when he says upon this rock, did he mean himself or did he mean Peter? I'm not going to break all that down today. I have what I believe about that. But, but the point is, Jesus says, I will build my church. Whatever he said to Peter, he didn't say, you will build my church. Right? Whatever he meant by Peter and all that, what he said was, I will build my church. So the Lord is the one who is actively building his own kingdom. And, and I want you to know this, and this should be for your encouragement as well. He will not lose you. You're going through maybe some hard things in your life as a subject in the kingdom of God. That's right, because you're growing up in a field where tares are growing at the same time in the same place, right? And so Jesus says, in the world, you're going to have trouble, all right? But guess what? No matter how hard it gets, he's not going to lose you. He won't lose you. You know what? 
Turn to John chapter 10 and verse 27. This is one of my favorite things that Jesus ever said. John 10, 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them. I love that because it does not say, my sheep hear my voice, and they know me. That, That logically seems like maybe what it should say, but it's not. My sheep hear my voice and I know them. He knows you. He knows you. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And I give them eternal life and they shall never die. Perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. We just read a parable that said an enemy went out into the field and sowed tares. That enemy, according to Jesus, was who? Satan, the devil. The devil is active. We're going to talk about that in a minute, right? But what does Jesus say here? I give them eternal life and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. Whatever Satan is doing to try to thwart the growth of the kingdom of God and he is alive and well and active and everything else and doing everything he can to disrupt and break up the work of the gospel and the work of the church and the work of the kingdom of God. But know this, you will never be lost from the Lord to him if you are his. You are secure in him no matter how hard it gets. I give them eternal life. They'll never die. No one will ever snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me. Ooh. Listen, the ones who are the children of God, listen, and this is a tremendous statement about the sovereignty of God in in saving people, right? It's not just that, listen, I always tell people, when I first got saved, it sure seemed like I was like making a decision for the Lord. You know what I mean? But when you, when you read this statement, what you realize is the Father chose me and gave me to Jesus. And now I'm His. And all does my life and my ministry and everything get hard and discouraging from time to time to time to time to time. He will never lose me. Ooh. breaking wires up here. He will never lose me and he will never lose you because he knows me. Isn't it great? Isn't it great that my my relationship with God, though I have responsibility to seek him and to serve him and to worship him, but my relationship with God is not dependent upon what I know of him. My relationship with God is dependent upon the fact that He speaks to me and He knows me. Amen. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one, by the way. I added the by the way, sorry. But you get it, right? All right. So, back to the parable. So number one, The Son of Man, the one who sows the good seed, is the Son of Man. Jesus. 
He is active. He is the builder. And he will not lose anyone. Number two. Here's another observation. Again, not trying to overinterpret here, just trying to exegete what is really, truly important about this parable. The field is the world. The good seeds are the sons of the kingdom. And the tares are the sons of the wicked one. All right, now, ready? Test. Raise your hand if you live on planet Earth. Good. Raise your hand if you think that you don't live on planet Earth. And then come see me after the service and and I'll do what I can to convince you. You live in the world. I know you're not of the world, but you live in the world. Okay? And the world is the field in this. Now, raise your hand if you think you know one of your friends who, even though some of them may not seem like they live in this world, they all do live in this world, right? Here's the point. Here's the point. There is nothing else in the field. There is wheat and there are tares. And the wheat represents the sons of the kingdom and the tares represent what? The sons of the enemy, the sons of the evil one, the sons of the wicked one, it says at the end of verse 38. There is nothing else. There are no other people. There's a series of twos There's a series of one thing compared with another in this parable, right? Have you noticed that? There are two sowers, right? Jesus and and the devil. There are two kinds of plants. There's wheat and there's tares. And those two kinds of plants represent two kinds of people, sons of the kingdom and sons of the wicked one. Everyone in this world is either a son of the kingdom or a son of the wicked one. That would give you some explanation as to why Jesus says, well, the farmer in the parable itself says, don't rip up the wheat or don't rip up the tares because you might disturb the wheat. Here is another tremendous statement about the sovereignty of God in election and in saving people. The reason you can't rip up the sons of the evil one is because, number one, not only will it provide disturbance to the sons of the kingdom, but some of those sons of the evil one, as we perceive it, are God's elect who have not heard the gospel yet and are going to be saved. God knows who are His. The Lord knows who are His. He knows that I'm His. If you're in Christ, He knows that you're His. And He knows even among the lost in this world who are His, who have not yet come to Him, but at His appointed time are going to come. As it says in Acts chapter 3, Acts chapter 13, those who were appointed to receive salvation believed. I'm sorry if I'm overwhelming you with all that stuff, but this is the stuff that you got to see. Right? In the world, they're sons of the kingdom and they're sons of the evil one. And you know what? Though God always knew that I would be saved, man, I used to be one of those children of the wicked one until he met me and redeemed me. And you could tell by the fruit of my life. Look at the Apostle Paul himself who stood there consenting to the execution of Stephen, one of the Lord's first servants in the church. But then after he got saved, look at what he became. 
He was a servant of the wicked one as he was persecuting the church. But then the Lord met him and brought him to himself and he was converted and he was changed. But listen, that's all there is in this world. And listen, I want to encourage you right now. If you're here today and you're not in Christ, there's no middle ground and there's no outside ground. There's nothing that exists for humans outside this world. And if you're in this world, you're either a son of the kingdom or you're a son of the wicked one. You want to, you want to see how straight Jesus puts this? Look at, um, go to uh, John chapter 8 real quick. If, you, if you're already thinking yourself, if you're familiar with the Bible, you know John chapter 8 is a tremendous conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders and all the people standing around. He says some very powerful and tremendous things. One of the things they asserted in John 8, 39, Abraham is our father. That was always the defense, right? You know, you're coming along and you're doing this and you're saying that. Hey, Abraham is our father. We're in. Jesus says in verse 42, If God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God. Nor have I come of myself, but he sent me. Why do you not understand my speech? Because you're not able to listen to my word. Look at this. You are of your father, the devil. Wow, tell us what you really think, Lord. I mean, hey, Jesus gets right to it. Those who were opposing and rejecting the work of the gospel, those who were opposing and rejecting the grace of God that Christ was bringing from heaven, from the Father, Jesus doesn't leave any middle ground there. If God is not your Father, the devil is. In the farmer's field, there are wheat and there are tares. And that's all. Look what he says. You're of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he's a liar and the father of it. But because I tell you the truth, you don't believe me. Listen, what do they want? What do they do? They told lies about him and they wanted to kill him. Who was that? That was Satan. Satan was the liar and the father of all liars. And he was a murderer from the beginning. And that's exactly what they wanted to do. So they were not sons of the kingdom because they rejected God. They rejected his son. They rejected the gospel. And they weren't in some middle ground somewhere. Listen, this is one there's no escape for you or for me. You're either into the king, you're either in the kingdom of God or you're in the kingdom of the evil one, which is doomed for eternal destruction. God's love and God's grace and God's mercy and God's gift to you is that you can be a subject in his kingdom. His gift to you is that you can become one of his sons or daughters. His gift to you is that you can come out of the kingdom of this world and come into the kingdom of light, the kingdom of the Son who He loves. And that is through faith in Jesus Christ. You repent, humble yourself, repent, and turn to the Lord Jesus Christ, 
and believe on him with all of your heart and he will completely just take you, adopt you, make you a joint heir with himself and make you his own child. And you will pass from one kingdom to the other. Oh, that's marvelous. But that's it. Listen, it's one or the other. There's no middle ground. And the parable of the wheat and the tares makes that clear. In the field, there's wheat and there's tares, and that's it. All right, looking back at Matthew 13. Now, the following is obvious. The first thing was that Jesus is the builder of the kingdom. The second thing I saw was that there's nothing else in the field. There's wheat and there's tares. The third thing is that is related to the first thing. The first thing was that the Jesus was the builder of the kingdom, but you need to see that both Jesus and Satan are active. Right? I mentioned that Jesus is active because he said, I am with you always. He dispatched us to do work, but he said, I am with you always. And so the Lord Jesus is active among us and leading us and guiding us and helping us to accomplish what it is that he has sent us out to do. But you need to know that Satan is active as well. Spiritual war is going on. Both Jesus and Satan are in it. Jesus is building his kingdom, and Satan is trying to destroy it. How? We've seen other tactics of Satan as you read about him in the Bible. You read that he's an angel of light. So one of the tactics of Satan is to uh, appear good. And, and try to deceive people with falsehood and wicked things which appear good and seem good to men. That's one way. We know that he's a liar, right? We know that he challenges the word of God like in the Garden of Eden has God said. And he's always had like, you know, all of his other things, you know, sowing division and, and, and things like this. But I find there's, there's an interesting little thing that was said back in the parable itself that, that you should note. It says that In verse 25, back up in verse 25, look at those first four words, but while men slept. Now there's there's one of those statements where you can kind of over-interpret a little bit. Like when I first was reading it, I was thinking to myself, hmm, there's a spiritual lesson there. We need to stay awake. You know, awake to righteousness and do not sin, for there are some who do not have the knowledge of God. But that's not really the point. I think that the point is more basic than that. The fact that the enemy worked while men slept, reveals how the enemy works. He does not wish to be seen. He does not wish to be known. Evil men, most evil men and criminal masterminds are like that. I find it amusing that, that a lot of people are, 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 are so entertained by gangster movies and mobster movies and everything else and and they, they fashion themselves as gangsters or mafia people or, or things like that. Listen, <laughs> no idea at all. I'm tell, listen, there's the occasional John Gotti who, who wears the expensive suits and likes, to, likes the publicity maybe that comes along with it. But, but those guys, the real ones, they want no attention whatsoever. Guarantee you, right? They don't want any attention drawn to themselves at all, right? And so I'm telling you right now, the movies that glorify all that, so far off. Look, this is exactly how Satan works. He wants no attention. The way, the, the, the way that you know... And listen, when did he go out into the field? While everyone was looking, 
So he could show how tough and how powerful he was? Yeah, let them try it. Watch this. You just sowed your field. Watch what I'm going to... Hey, man, watch this. Watch what I'm going to do right now. No, 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 no. While men slept, he went out into the field because that's how he works. That's how Satan works. He works behind the scenes. He works surreptitiously. He is clandestine. He is secretive. And he is persistent. And he never stops. He walks around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. We know that. That speaks to his, that speaks to his persistence. But he's active. He's clandestine and secretive. And his servants, his children, as we just saw in the passage we read in John, and as we see in this parable here, his children are growing up where? Right next to the children of the kingdom. Just like the tares grow up next to the wheat. You understand? The thing you need to realize about spiritual warfare is that it's real. And you can't ever just dismiss it or put it aside or say, that sounds a little crazy. I don't want to hear about that. I want to hear about this or this or this. I don't want to hear about that. You know, this is a little over the top. This is why people think Christians are crazy. Listen, that's Satan talking. Because that's exactly where he wants to be. His people thinking that it's not real. But the Apostle Paul saw it, didn't he? Didn't he? When he wrote Ephesians 6. You know in Ephesians 6 when he, when he described you know, the whole armor of God, put on the breastplate of righteousness and the, the helmet of salvation, and take up the shield of faith and the sword of the Spirit and feet shot at the preparation of the gospel peace. I mean, it's great, man, right? But how did he start that passage off? We do not wrestle with flesh and blood, but against principalities. Principalities, what's that? Powers spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. What is that a reference to? Unseen powers, forces, and beings in the spirit that you can't see who are active. Sowing seeds of doubt, sowing seeds of error, sowing seeds of conflict, sowing seeds of bitterness, and any other thing that is contrary to the love that ought to characterize the kingdom of God and the church of God. And they grow up side by side. This is, and this is why you can't... Though, though he's talking about the field being the world and not specifically talking about the church, you can't just separate the church out of this. Because number one, the church exists in the world. Number two, everybody who's in the church was once in the world, right? Or, or subject to and a part of the kingdom of the world before they were saved, right? And number three, it's preposterous to think that the devil would not, in the world, attack the church. And he does. But the way that he does it is silent, clandestine infiltration of his children. You heard me say that. That's exactly what's being described here. Because the reaction of the disciples is, should we go out and gather the tares up? 
I mean, I mean, that's pretty dangerous stuff. You've got the sons of the kingdom and the sons of the devil growing up side by side. Let's go out and get all those sons of the devil and get them out of here. No. No. No, don't do that. Don't do that because that's going to... That's, if, if you uproot the sons of the devil, it's going to harm the sons of the kingdom as well. Right? So no. The time will come when I will send my harvesters. And then that's at the time at the end. We're coming to that. But the devil is real. And you have to be very, very careful about that. And you need to understand that the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this, the kingdom of God is being built and being attacked simultaneously because they grow up side by side. And it does you no good to dismiss that. It only causes you harm and services the purposes of the devil to dismiss all of that. Some other day, we'll delve into the whole subject of spiritual warfare all by itself even more. The other thing you need to realize is that then here's number four. All of this is happening here and now, and it's happening in the world, as we described, but as we've just seen who the players are, the Son of Man and the devil, and we have seen where it's happening in the world, now what's the other question? How long? How long does it go on? And what does he describe here? He says, as you go through the explanation, we've talked about most of this, the one who sows the good seeds of the Son of Man, the fields of the world, the good seeds of the sons of the kingdom, the tares of the sons of the wicked one, the enemy who sowed them is the devil. Ah, and what? The harvest is what? What's the harvest? The end of the age. You're following this, right? I hope you are. Verse, verse, uh, verse 39. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age. And who are the reapers? Angels. And so what's going to happen? He says, Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of this age. The Son of Man will send out His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all things that offend and those who practice lawlessness. One day, the end is going to come. That's the thing that you need to realize. It was spoken of by everyone, virtually, who wrote anything in the New Testament. Paul spoke of the end. Peter spoke of the end. Jude speaks of the end. John, when he wrote Revelation, speaks of the end. Jesus, you read right in this book, Matthew chapter 24 and other places, often spoke of the end. There is an end to all of this. And, and, and while some Christians have different views about the chronologies of various events that pertain to the end, one thing we know is this. There is an end, and the Lord is going to come, and He's going to bring that end. That we know. And when the Lord comes, what He says here is He's going to send out His angels, and His angels are going to... And, and, and look, angels. Angels are real. They're not decorations for Christmas trees. I understand why it's associated with the season, because of the passage of Scripture about the night that Jesus was born, and they're all out in the field and all that stuff. So that's beautiful, that's wonderful, that's good. But listen... Here, what are these angels? These are some warrior angels, right? And these angels are sent out at the end of the age because the Lord is coming back to establish His kingdom here. But He's going to not come back. He is not coming back to what's going on here now. 
Do you understand that? He's not coming back to like it is now. He's coming back, and when he comes back, he's going to send forth his angels who are going to gather out of all of this that which is offensive and those who practice lawlessness. And just like, just like the tares are gathered up and thrown in the fire, so those who practice lawlessness and all that offend will be gathered up and thrown. And this is really interesting. In the parable, there's all these things that represent something else, but the one thing that's the same is the fire. Fire is illustrated by fire. Like he says in the parable, they'll gather up the tares and throw them in the fire and they'll be burned. What does the fire represent? Fire. (laughs) It represents the furnace of fire, the fiery furnace. We think of like the fiery furnace, like with the Babylonians, you know, and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and that whole story, you know, and that's uh, Daniel, right? And, and, and you think about that story, but listen, there is a very real, eternal, fiery furnace that exists, and we call it hell. And it is real. It's, it's part of the spiritual war, it's on the spiritual warfare continuum. It is where people who apart from Christ end up. And there is an end to all of this. And the end to all of this is that while the Lord says, don't mess with anything now, He says at the end, I will send forth My angels and they're going to take care of it. Why? What are we to concentrate on now? Listen, we endure through the hardships now. It's not our job to go wheat, tear, wheat, tear, wheat, tear, and try to figure all that out. We don't have that vision. We don't have that power. We don't have that sovereignty. We don't know if someone who's not saved now is one of his elect who one day will get saved, as we mentioned before. What is our job here and now? Preach the gospel to people. What is our job now? Love one another. What is our job now? Bear one another's burdens. And we're told the devil's going to be attacking all along the way, which is why we're told to be sober and vigilant and watch. And watch. It's why we're told by James to resist him. And he will flee from you. But we're not told to go out and go wheat, tear, wheat, tear, wheat, tear. We're told to persist, preach the gospel, make disciples, pray, fellowship, love one another, encourage one another, bear one another's burdens and fulfill the law of Christ, endure hardships as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. That's what we're told now. And then in the end, there is a great separating of wheat and tare. But that is done by the Lord himself via his own angels whom he will send, who will gather up the tares and then gather the wheat into the barn. And what does all that represent? It represents the glorious future that's coming. I mentioned before you noticed the twos, right? As you read through this, you see there's two sowers, right? That's the the farmer and the enemy. And they represent what? Jesus and the devil. You see there's two plants. That's wheat and tares. And that represents the sons of the kingdom and the sons of the enemy. There are two There are two times 
There's now and there's the future, right? The parable speaks about both of those. There's the time of now where they grow side by side and there's the time of the end when the angels will sort them all out. And there are two ends. There are two ends. There is a furnace of fire and there's a barn, right? And where we want to be is in the barn. What does the barn represent according to Jesus? Verse 41, the Son of Man, we read that. Verse 42, cast them into the furnace of fire. Listen, wailing and gnashing of teeth. There's no glossing over the perils, the eternal torment and sadness of hell. And yet verse 43 could not say anything more the opposite. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. In, in, in. In the book of Revelation, the future kingdom is described in terms that we can't even understand. It's described in terms of like this big square that like sits on top of the earth, the new Jerusalem, right? And it's described as a place where, where God is and there's no need for the physical actual sun because the place is lighted by the presence of God in the place. And what does it say here? It says that the righteous will shine forth as the sun as we reflect the glory of God himself who is there. That's the eternal future for the sons of the kingdom. No matter what hardships, no matter what difficulties you go through in this life, that's the eternal future for the sons of the kingdom. To shine like the sun in the presence of the one for whom the, 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 the sun is like a dim flashlight whose batteries are burning out. We just reflect the glory of our Father forever and ever and ever. There's two destinations. There's a furnace of fire and there's the kingdom of the Father. Come to Christ. Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus who is the only one, the only one who can take you to the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is a destination and the only one who can take you there is Jesus himself. The sower of the good seed, the Savior, the Messiah. Come to Jesus and be saved. Well, so that's a lot of stuff in the parable of the sower. There's probably more that we could say. I mean, I filled up a whole paper with a whole bunch of notes and stuff like that, and I've read them all to you. So, so there, there we have it. But look, where are you at? Let me, let me just read one passage. I've got a couple of minutes here. Let me read one passage of Scripture that I think should put your mind where it ought to be, knowing these things. Knowing the spiritual warfare that goes on and is real, and knowing that there is an end that is coming, see what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 7. And we'll end with that. Turn to 1 Peter 4 and verse 7. See what he says? 1 Peter 4, 7. But the end of all things is at hand. Right? Peter, Peter was one of the people listening to Jesus when he explained the parable of the wheat and the tares and 
talked about spiritual warfare, talked about the end. Peter saw it. The end of all things is at hand. So what should you do? We're told, Peter tells us right here what you ought to do. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. The idea of watchful is that you're being careful in your prayers not to miss it and not to like overlook things. Watchful in your prayers. Praying about what's really going on. Serious. Above all things, above all things. You saw those words, right? More important than anything else. Have fervent love for one another. Because look what love can do. Look what love among one another can do. Cover a multitude of sins. And the idea of covering a multitude of sins is that it, it could be taken maybe a couple of ways, and I don't want to be all absolute about it like I understand it and other people don't, but when you think about love covering a multitude of sins, the idea is that as we love one another, we know that we all have flaws, we know that we all have failings, but what love does is it causes us to be gracious to one another because we've received grace from the Lord. And in that sense, when you're loving someone who's battling and struggling and wrong, but you're showing them the grace of God. And by your love for them, you're pointing them to God, who is love. Listen, that's, how, that's one of the chief ways that God continually loves us. He demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We know that. But how does his love for us then go on? Well, there's the Holy Spirit by whom the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts. But one of the chief ways that God shows his love for us is through each other. And and one of the chief things that each other do for each other is we're gracious with one another, right? And patient with one another, covering a multitude of sins. Not glossing over sin, not not dealing with things that don't need to be dealt with, but not kicking each other and beating each other down and slandering each other and, and, and taking this position of condescension and superiority over someone who maybe is battling and struggling that, that contradicts the purpose for the church. It's from the tares. <laughs> In the context of what's going on. No. Above everything, fervent love for one another covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling. Hospitality is a beautiful thing. Hospitality without grumbling is really something special. You see the word hospital. The idea of hospitality is really caring for other people's needs. But caring for it without that one ingredient that sours everything which is complaining and grumbling, oh, I've got to help this person again. Why can't they just you? Listen, take it away. Hospitable without grumbling. As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another. He's telling you how you ought to live when you're aware that the end is at hand. It's exactly when Jesus is talking about the parable of the wheat and tares. That whole thing about the wheat and tares growing up together is that we're not going to touch them until the Lord himself at the end of all things comes and takes. So how ought you to live now, knowing that the wheat and tares are growing up side by side? Here's how. Recognizing that the end is coming and the end is near, and then serious and watchful in your prayers. Fervent love for one another. Hospitality without grumbling. As anything you've received as a gift, serve one another with it as a good steward of the manifold grace of God. If you speak, if you speak, if you speak, you see this statement here? Let him speak as the oracles of God. 
In other words, when you speak, you speak as if God would say it himself. If anyone ministers or serves, let him do it with the ability which God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Right? So, as we live in the kingdom of God now, knowing that the sons of the kingdom grow up in turbulent, troublesome times side by side with the sons of the devil, knowing that that is going to be the state of things until the end when the Lord himself sends his angels to harvest properly, knowing that end is coming, pray, love, hospitality, service, gifts, show the grace of God to each other and glorify the Lord Jesus to whom belongs all glory. That's how you live while this thing that Jesus describes in the parable of the wheat and tares is is going on. You will struggle along the way But listen, remember what we said in the very beginning here. For all your struggles, God's not going to lose you. He's never going to give up on you. He's faithful to complete the good work that he's begun in you. So you never give up. Like that song we sang, Lord, reign in me again. I blew it yesterday, but Lord, you're my Lord. I want you more than anything. Reign in me today. I just keep coming back coming back, coming back. His mercies are new every day. Don't give up. The end and the harvest will come. We're told how to live until then, right? Stand up and let's close in prayer. Our Lord, we thank you for this time we've had together here. We learned about your kingdom today. We learned something hard and really eye-opening about your kingdom today, that the subjects of your kingdom grow up in the world side by side with the subjects of the evil one. And maybe that's no great surprise, but we need to know how we ought to trust in you and how we ought to live as that spiritual reality continues to take place. We know the time of your return and your harvest will come. Help us, Lord, to live as we ought, as we watch. We thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.